Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Happy New Year. Can't believe it's the first Sunday of the new year. It's hard to believe that uh, New Year's Day was just this past Monday. It seems like we're already halfway through the year or something. But um, So kids, you guys are dismissed. And youth, you guys are going to go out with uh, Don Jay and help put the feast together. And uh, we are going to be in the book of Mark this morning. But before we go there, I wanted to spend just a minute. I'm usually just terrible at this kind of stuff. But I did want to spend just a minute kind of looking back at uh, 2023 because it's kind of the first normal year that it seems like we've had in a while. Uh, and just as I was thinking about it over the break, there's just so much I think that the Lord did in 2023, just ways that he really blessed us as a church and just some neat uh, growth I think that we've seen. You know, last year we journeyed through the Bible all together um, on the Dwell app and we went, if you remember with us, we went through the chronological plan and just what a neat way to listen through uh, the scriptures. We also on Sunday mornings in our uh, little scripture readings, we, uh, whether you knew it or not, we actually went through all of the Psalms, kind of uh, selectively but systematically through the Psalms on Sunday mornings. We have been in the book of Mark uh, all year. It's amazing how long it can take me to get through a 16-chapter, the shortest of all the Gospels. But we will finish it this year. I promise you that. Um, you know, regroup, uh, Pastor Jeff covered the book of Exodus and then uh, a survey through the Psalms on Wednesday nights. Uh, life groups, of course, meeting each and every week to kind of talk about the, the sermon and just share ideas and ways the Lord was ministering. But that happened all throughout the year uh, in our small groups for men and women. You remember we started off with a, a study all the way through the, the minor prophets and then we did some summer book groups in the summer, and then uh, we're about halfway through our uh, study through First and Second Samuel. Uh, in addition to that, of course, the men meeting each month, studying through Philippians, the, the ladies meeting each month for fellowship and, uh, and just kind of times of prayer and togetherness. We had a specific kind of a women's getaway day. We had a men's getaway day, a women's conference. There's a, a men's conference coming up shortly. Um, the married couples went through that neat kind of vertical marriage study. The youth group, of course, with their regular outings and a, a special camp that they went to. A couple different, um, I think, different sessions of our 30 days to understanding the Bible class. Um, and you pair all of that with our, our monthly kind of consistent uh, agape fellowships, Friday night fellowships that we had during the summer you know, our every week kind of pre-service prayer meetings. And so when you kind of add it all up, there's just so much that the Lord, I think, did. And the, the neat thing about all of that is not just kind of a full church calendar or a full bulletin full of stuff, but it really goes so far beyond that to just, I think, the growth that we have seen um, just the increased engagement and just the spiritual growth, I mean, the growth in our body in terms of depth and, uh, and breadth, uh, as well as number. It's been an exciting year kind of for some of the ministries outside of our walls. We watched this year as the Lord really expanded the reach of our weekly live streams um, you know, on YouTube and on Facebook and on Twitch and on the church website itself. And uh, from all over the world, people tuning in from crazy places like Dubai. Apparently, I'm, I'm big in Dubai. So I've, so I've got not very big here, but really big in Dubai. I'm not sure what exactly that means. But um, of particular excitement, I think this was a year we really wanted to kind of press into um, uh, getting back into kind of missions and, you know, we started a, a whole a kind of a support partnership with uh, a sister church now that we have down in, uh, in Chile with the Browers, that refugio uh, ministry down there, uh, another partnership with a local ministry here, of course, Foster the City, as we've watched Pastor Chris and Heather kind of walk through that process and now have their very first placement with this sweet, uh, sweet baby girl that uh, God has entrusted to them. Uh, of course, that paired with, you know, some Israel relief that we did in the face of the, the war. And so just so much, I think, as we look back, so much to be thankful for in ways that the Lord has worked. And that doesn't even include all the work that he's done 
uh, in each one of our own hearts. And hopefully this past year has been a year where you've seen some growth spiritually. And, and I pray that your hunger for the word and your hunger for the Lord um, has really increased. And there are some really exciting things I think that you'll find that we have on the horizon in 2024. Uh, just some new ministry partnerships that we're working on, um, both internationally as well as locally here, some uh, things that we'll be announcing in the coming weeks, uh, as well just as some new ministry opportunities, opportunities for, you know, more growth and continued connection here uh, within the church. And I will say this, though, that as we start out kind of into this new year, there are some particular challenges that we're going to be uh, navigating as a church. And not the least of those is that uh, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer this past fall. And what I will say is that we're pretty optimistic. The prognosis is good. Apparently they caught it early, whatever that means in doctor speak. But after lots of, you know, opinions and tests and labs and scans and consultation, um, I'm scheduled for surgery here at the end of this month, and from everything we understand, the surgery itself is pretty routine, and yet the recovery on the backside of that is a little bit more prolonged. And so to get to the point, if I can be frank, it'll be a little while before I'll be able to be back up here and get through a whole teaching without needing a bathroom break. So I know that's just another reason why we should have 20-minute sermons, but... That's not going to happen. <clears throat> but the point is that while I kind of recover and build back up to that point, to that 50-minute mark that I know you guys love, but uh, the pastors and I have been working hard to put together what I think is a really exciting, kind of a wonderful calendar of some really special guest speakers, uh, mainly for the month of February. And these are some men that are going to come and share with us. And I really believe that each and every one of them is going to be such a tremendous blessing for all of us, because my intention is to be right here sitting with you guys, actually probably sitting out in the foyer near the restroom, but sitting right here with you as we're really ministered to for all of these coming Sundays. Um, we're going to start out that, uh, that list of men with um, Pastor Bill Holdridge from Poyman Ministries. And if you guys don't know Pastor Bill, he's one of my pastors, one of the men who uh, has really helped in, in my spiritual formation. He's one of the reasons that, that I am a pastor and still a pastor today. And I know he'll bring a tremendous word of encouragement to us from the Word of God. The next week, we'll have um, Pastor Charlie Campbell, and he runs a ministry called Always Be Ready, and it's an apologetics ministry based on always being ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But um, he's fantastic, and he has different, um, different uh, talks, if you will, or presentations that he gives on all kinds of apologetic subjects. I think I'm going to ask him to, to just really dive deep for us into evidences for the Word of God, you know, why we can really trust and rely upon the Bible. And he has all of the, the latest and greatest kind of cutting-edge discoveries that he'll be able to share with us. Um, the week after that, we'll have a brother named Pastor Clay uh, Worrell from, um, he's the executive director of the Calvary Global Network. And the Calvary Global Network is this network of this family of Calvary Chapel churches that we are privileged and proud to be a part of. And they have some really exciting things that uh, are going on, different ministries that whether you know it or not, we're a part of. And so uh, I'm asking him to come share from the Word of God with us and just to really encourage us in some of these different opportunities that we have uh, that they're involved in. Um, after that, we're going to have a brother named Joseph Ryan, and he'll come to us from an organization called Chosen People Ministries, a wonderful ministry dedicated to uh, sharing Jesus with God's chosen people, the Jews, introducing them to him as their Messiah. And he's going to come and share with us Again, from a very, from a messianic perspective, uh, kind of, you know, the gospel according to Israel or, you know, the, the kind of what's on the landscape uh, for the Middle East. And he'll have, uh, he was in the, the, the military prior to going into full-time ministry. 
So he'll have some interesting insights, I think, to share with us uh, about that. And he's going to have a ministry that he's actually introducing Chosen People is starting as we roll into this new year. Um, it'll be an opportunity where we can get involved if you want to individually to really bless uh, the Israelis, especially as we get uh, eventually on the other side of this war. So all of those speakers, plus there's one more Sunday I'm trying to confirm, so stay tuned for details on that. All in all, uh, I think it's going to be a wonderful month where we're all really ministered to and, and just built up in a way that we don't normally get built up uh, on a Sunday morning. Now, as far as our study through the gospel according to Mark, uh, I know we're close to the end, but we just have too much important stuff to get through, to try to race through it, to finish it up before our February break. So we're going to press on for the next few weeks and then take a little pause, pick it back up as we head into March, and it just so happens that when we get to the last Sunday in March, on what is Easter Sunday, uh, we'll be looking that day at Mark's account of the resurrection of Jesus and that Easter morning. And then the very next Sunday, the very first Sunday of April, we'll finish up the book with uh, uh, Mark's account of the Great Commission and the Ascension. And uh, then we'll move on to another book, which we'll talk about uh, a little later. So all of that to say, I think 2024 is going to be a great year. We've got some exciting things to look forward to. We've got these challenges to navigate that I know the Lord's going to bring us uh, through. And uh, on a personal note, of course, uh, we would thank you in advance for anyone who's inclined to pray for the surgery and for the recovery and for the church, certainly during this time. And please pray for uh, Michelle and pray for the kids. And um, I think I speak for all of us when I say we know God's got this and I'm not concerned. Maybe I'm an idiot, but I'm just not concerned at all. I know God's got this and whatever it is that he wants to do is good with me. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with that said, get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Mark. Jason took half my time. Donjay took the other half and I just wasted the last half. Wait, that's three halves. So... So we got another half and a half to go. But anyway, we're going to be in Mark chapter 14 this morning. Let's pray and just ask the Lord, thank the Lord for the way he has blessed and just ask him to continue to bless uh, us in the word this morning. So Father, we do thank you so much. We thank you for this body of believers, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us to come together into fellowship each week, Lord, not only on Sunday mornings, but so many times uh, outside of this time. And we pray your continued blessing on all of those meetings, Lord. We pray for uh, this year as we look ahead, Lord. We pray for the challenges that we'll face as a church body in these initial months, Lord. But we just look forward with great expectation to what it is that you're going to do during this time in each one of us and the ways that you're going to build us up and strengthen us. And Lord, we pray that you do exactly that now as we go to your word. We pray that you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to each one of us, Lord, individually and collectively as your church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So good to be back, isn't it, uh, after a little bit of a break uh, in the book of Mark. It's, Mark has just become like this good friend that we've been with all throughout this year. And we're picking up this morning, Mark 14. We're going to pick up at verse 27. And as you remember, Jesus is now just days away from the cross. And when we last left off, we had joined Jesus and the disciples for what we would call the Last Supper. And you remember it was held there in the upper room, very likely on what we would call Thursday night of that Passion Week, that last week of the life of Jesus. And we watched as Mark recorded what would be the very last Passover feast that Jesus would share with his disciples, right? That Passover feast that commemorated the deliverance of the Jews physically from their bondage in Egypt. And that meal was also the very first of what we would now call the communion celebration or the, the Lord's Supper, as we commemorate now, week to week, right? This great 
deliverance not just from the bondage physically, but from that bondage spiritually to that grip of sin in each of our lives, right? We take that opportunity to look back and we remember the death of Jesus on the cross, even as we're going to do at the end of the service this morning. And remember in our text, it was a few weeks back, but we watched as Jesus took those elements, right? He took the bread and he took the wine that were already there, a part of the Passover meal, and he really redefined them and he applied them now to his own coming sacrifice. And what he really did was he gave them finally their full expression. Remember we said he wasn't just giving Passover a new meaning, but he was really giving the Passover its highest meaning. He was just finally uncovering that meaning that it was always meant to have because the Passover was always meant to be a commemorative event. It was supposed to remember that great deliverance of, of God's people out of Egypt, but it was also always intended to be a prophetic event, an event that pointed to the Lamb of God who would come and who would take away the sins of the world. And so that was the element that Jesus now was really introducing into this Passover meal, that there would now be this new covenant that would be established by his blood shed for many. And we talked about the fact how powerful it is that each and every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's a reminder right there in that cup that our relationship with God is based on nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus, right? That that is the basis of this new covenant. And in other words, as we said, it's based 100% on God's grace, entirely on the grace of God. Nothing that we can do or, or boast in, right? That's the one thing, as Jason read, that we should boast in is that we know the Lord. And so now as we continue on, when we look at our text today, I think we're going to see, we're going to be reminded, even in these short verses, of this wonderful truth in what is a very powerful and a personal and a very practical way. And unfortunately, it's going to come through the example and really through the failure of our good friend Peter. It's going to be a, a short, but I think an important glimpse into this pitfall that Peter's going to fall into and that we each want to really avoid. But I think more than that, it's also a, a great reminder for each of us of, if we could say, this is precisely the place that we want to be living, right? And it's a great reminder, I think, as we head in now to a new year. So you remember we left off at the end of our text last time. They were finished with that first celebration of communion and that last celebration of Passover. In verse 26 of Mark chapter 14, it said that when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And we noted quickly last time at the end that they would have sung the Halal, right, which ended the Passover meal. It was the singing of three psalms, Psalm 116, 17, and 18. And we read portions of them last time. Remember these three incredible messianic psalms that spoke so clearly of the Lord's deliverance and of the Lord's deliverer, right, and of this new covenant that would come. And even as now, as Jesus was standing up from that supper and walking to Gethsemane, those are the words that would have been on his lips and in his heart. And what an encouragement those scriptures would have been to him of the way that the Lord was going was gonna to guide his Messiah through the distress and through the suffering that was to come. And even now, so now they're walking from the upper room, which we believe would have been probably on the western side of the city, but within the city walls. Now they would be walking out of the city itself through the eastern gate on the eastern side of the city, and then up the western slopes of the Mount of Olives, where of course we have, as the name would imply, these groves and these gardens of these beautiful 
olive trees that covered the landscape. Now, what's important, and I think is so impactful about this little walk on this little night, is that in between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives lay what was called the Kidron Valley. And it sort of separated the city of Jerusalem, and that area of the Temple Mount in particular, from the Mount of Olives on the other side. And it was sort of a, a little valley that actually started just north of the city, and then it ran the length all the way actually down to the Dead Sea. But as they walked, they would have actually crossed over some water that naturally flowed down through this rift. And in fact, John tells us that at the end of the supper that Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now the reason that I point this out, the reason that this matters I think to us is that the word Kidron means dark or it even means black. And the reason that it was called that is because it was into this brook that they would wash all of the blood from the sacrifices that were made in the temple. They had created this special drainage channel that emptied from the temple mount down into the brook Kidron. And it turned all of the water, all of that blood turned all of that water and turned the valley itself black. And it smelled constantly with this stench of fresh blood. You can just imagine from the thousands of thousands of gallons of blood, right, as it emptied into this brook from the thousands and thousands of sacrificed animals, especially during a time like this at the annual Passover. And so on this night, right, we can just imagine, think about from the time that Jesus had started to come up to Jerusalem as a boy, right? We have evidence in the Gospels from the age of 12 as he came up, started to come up for these Passover feasts. You can imagine how many times he had come first as a boy and then as a young man and then as, a, as an adult and come across this very same Valley Kidron and just that smell of it and the color of it that would be etched in his memory, right, because of all the blood of the sacrifices. And now here on the eve of his own death, think about it, as he prepared to become for us the ultimate sacrifice, here he is walking with his disciples across this Kidron and across this river of blood that flowed right beneath him, knowing full well that his own blood was about to be shed. And I think it's just a staggering thought to think of, to, just to try for us to think of the kinds of things that would have been going through the mind of Jesus, even during this simple walk. And again, with the words of these scriptures just fresh in his mind, we didn't read these verses last time, but in Psalm 118, it says, this is where it says that the Lord is my strength and my song. Song, he has become my salvation. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, it's incredible to consider that as they're walking, right, across this valley, out into the night and, and into this garden, that this was the time, now we read in verse 27, it says that then Jesus said to them, he says, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now this isn't the first time, right? We remember there's been a number of points all throughout the ministry of Jesus that he has faithfully warned the disciples of what was to come as he got closer and closer to the cross. And here he says that it is on this very night. Right? As they started to see the fury of the storm kind of breaking, he says that fear's gonna overwhelm them and to save their own skins, they are gonna forsake their beloved master. 
And it's interesting that the verb there that's translated to stumble, or some of your translations might say to fall away, but it's interesting because it means to take offense at someone or something and to thereby turn away and turn into sin. So here, as Jesus is predicting that all 11 of these remaining disciples, remember Judas has already left, but he says all 11 of you guys are going to take offense at my sufferings, take offense at my death, and to avoid that same treatment, you're also going to fall away. You're going to deny being associated with me. You're going to desert me, that all of your loyalty is going to completely collapse. And what's really interesting about that same word, that the noun form, it's the word scandalon in the Greek, and it's where we would get our word what? Scandal. And it has this idea of the scandalon was the part of a trap that held the bait that when you trip it, the trap closes up. So you think about that, and what Jesus is saying in so many words is, guys, you are going to get caught in a snare. You're going to get trapped tonight, all of you. Before the night is over, you're going to get caught up in this, this sin of denying me. And so you can bet that this was such a, a, a powerful, colorful picture that Jesus is painting here. And I think that he does this not at all to condemn his disciples, but more so to comfort them. In that sense, simply just to show them again that he is completely in command of everything that is happening. He's absolutely prepared for everything that's going to come his way. And to demonstrate again to them that everything that happens is going to happen you know, that regarding the suffering of the Messiah, that it all has to be fulfilled. It all has to be fulfilled according to what the scripture said. And in particular, Jesus quotes to them a very familiar prophecy out of Zechariah. This was a sure prophecy. And then he applied that prophecy to himself personally. And again, I think that the reason he did it was to encourage them because look at what he says immediately after that. He says in verse 28, but after I've been raised, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. So notice that he doesn't leave them without this great hope, but he communicates so clearly that even though they are going to be ashamed of even be associated with him, he is never going to forsake them. And in fact, that after rising from the dead, he's going to go up and meet them again up in the Galilee. And this simple statement, what a wonderful promise. And I think that this should be an encouragement to each one of us individually on a number of levels, right? Theologically and practically and most importantly, personally. Because first and foremost, I think it reminds us, in kind of an incidental but important way, it reminds us of the unwavering confidence that is expressed by Jesus himself in the certainty of the scriptures. And I think this is especially important for us to understand because we live in a time where there is this just relentless and constant attack upon the trustworthiness and upon the authority of the Bible. But, you know, Jesus makes repeatedly, he makes these crystal clear statements to the effect that the scriptures are absolutely authoritative and that he trusted them explicitly. We see it here in verse 27. We see it in verse 28. By the time we get to the end of the chapter where he's there in the garden after he had just been arrested, in verse 49, if you look down there, he says that everything would happen the way it did, that the scriptures must be fulfilled. So here he is at the beginning of the night telling them what's going to happen later that night, and he knows it's going to happen not necessarily because he knows everything, right? As God, Jesus is omniscient, 
And yet I believe he emptied himself of some of those divine attributes. He doesn't say, look, I'm omniscient, so I know this. He says, I know this clearly because what? Because the scriptures predicted it would happen. Again, he has this absolute confidence in the word of God. And of course, the point for us is what? We can have that very same confidence. We can have that same confidence in the word of God as being absolutely accurate. And we can trust in the word of God for so many reasons. And as I said, Pastor Charlie's going to give us a whole morning of reasons when he comes to share with us. There are so many great arguments in defense of the scriptures, right? Archaeological arguments and historical arguments, logical arguments, rational arguments. But the best and the simplest and the one that's right here in our text for us this morning to be such a great encouragement to us, I think, throughout this whole new year is the fact that we can trust in the scriptures because Jesus himself trusted in the scriptures. Think about it. Jesus believed every word that was in the Bible. For him, that would have been the whole of the Old Testament. But he believed that all of it, right, every jot and every tittle, he believed it was all the word of God. And if Jesus believed it, we should believe it. Right? Think about it this way. Back up the truck just a little bit. There's plenty of evidence for this. But if we believe that Jesus is who he says he is, right? if we believe that he is God who came down and lived as a human being and lived life the way that we live life, and if he says that you can live your life the way that he lived his life, which was by completely trusting in the scriptures, then guess what, you guys? You can completely trust in the scriptures. And don't forget that. It's such a simple, but it's such a powerful reminder, and not just for ourselves, but this is something we can remind others of. And maybe you're that guy or that gal that you, maybe you know all of these other great arguments in defense of the scriptures and you can add those in when you talk to people. And that's great. And you can bring all of that stuff to the party, right? But if you don't know those things, know this thing. And never forget this one simple but incredibly compelling fact that Jesus himself believed God's word to be true. And so we can also. I think it's astounding, right? Jesus knew with complete confidence what lay ahead for him. He knew that he was about to be forsaken by all of his followers. He knew that after they betrayed him, that he would still go and die for them. He knew that then he'd be raised from the dead. And then he knew that he would go and meet the very people who betrayed him that he would go ahead of them, wait for them there in the Galilee, that beautiful place where he had first met them, where he had done most of the ministry with them, where they had lived together and walked together for three years. And I think it's beautiful because Jesus says, look, you guys, after all of this, I'm going to meet you back where this all began. He says, boys, we're going home. And I love the thought of this. He says, you know what? I know you're going to fail. And of course, we know that they're going to fail. These guys are going to absolutely shock themselves in how greatly they fail. But the point of this is, they are not going to shock the Lord at all. He's not caught off guard by any of this. And he speaks to that. He says, look, you will do that. But there will again be life after that. There will again be relationship with me on the other side of that failure. That failure is not going to be the final word in our relationship that I'm going to go before you and I'm going to wait for you after my resurrection and meet you in the Galilee. And let me encourage any one of you this morning who are struggling with your own failure with the Lord Jesus would say the very same thing to each and every one of us this morning. You know, none of our failures are a surprise to him. And not just because the scriptures have prophetically predicted in a sense that we're all going to fail, right? But that's not a surprise to him because he knows how we're wired. 
He knows how we're made. I love in Psalm 103, 14, the psalmist declares that he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. And I really love that verse in the NLT, if you guys like that translation. It says, he knows how weak we are and he remembers that we are only dust. God made us, right? And he knows us. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knows all of our weaknesses. He knows our strengths, right? He knows our fears and our anxieties and our temptations. And he knows our tendencies. And he knows them collectively. And he knows them individually. He knows them personally. Right? He knows them for you and he knows them for me. And guess what? He still loves us. And he still bears with us through all of those weaknesses. And how much do we just appreciate the Lord Jesus and love him for this aspect of his character? That even when we are flaky and even when we flee and when we're fickle and we falter and we fail, right, that Jesus the good shepherd never leaves us nor forsakes us. Instead, what does he say? He says, I'll search you out. When I rise again, I will see you and go before you and be waiting for you in the Galilee. And I love the fact that here, here's Jesus before the cross, already looking where? On the other side of the cross. He has got his eyes fixed, as it says in the Hebrews, on the joy that was set before him. And notice what he's doing for the disciples and what he's doing for us. He wants to fix their eyes there as well. He wants to fix their eyes beyond their failure. He wants to fix their eyes beyond the chaos that's coming, right? Beyond the crucifixion. And he wants their eyes, he wants our eyes to be fixed on the resurrection. Right? So we're not focused on the failures of our own flesh, but we're focused now on this new wonderful resurrection life that's on the other side of that failure again and again and again for us each and every time as we're walking with him and as we're knowing him and what a wonderful shepherd that we have we can always trust in him and I think as well as Jesus starts here he's trying to warn the disciples what's about to take place, and he's also trying to help them understand not only could they trust in him, but they should never trust in themselves because that is a a misplaced place to put your confidence. And of course, we're not surprised at all that the very next thing we read in verse 29 is what? Peter said to him, okay, ready? Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. He says, not me, right? You can count on me, Lord. Remember, I'm solid as a rock. You guys see what I did there? Peter, which means rock. Solid as a rock, Lord. This is a tough room this morning, I'm telling you what. Don't we love Peter, though? I mean, bless his heart. Look at what's happening here. Jesus tries to warn these guys. He tries to encourage these guys. Just hours before, he's about to go and die for these guys, as the scriptures promised that he would. And Peter decides the best thing to do is to argue with Jesus and argue with Zechariah, right? Argue with the word of God. And to throw his buddies under the bus in the process. Right, He says, look, Jesus, I could have told you about that Judas guy. And the truth is, I've had my doubts about these other ten right from the beginning. I know them. They're going to fold on you like a cheap suit, right? Or like a, fold like a deck of cards or whatever you fold like, right? But not me, Lord. And the one thing we can always appreciate about Peter is he supersizes everything, right? He's always a little extra. And especially, we've got kind of a a double pride working here, 
right? An especially dangerous sense of misplaced confidence because first and foremost, we've got the, this inflated sense of self-confidence, but then we've got this real overconfidence as he compares himself and puts himself above everybody around him. Right? The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, he says, when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, what? They are not wise. When you compare yourself to other people, you're doing the wrong thing. And this is precisely what Peter is doing here. And he did it emphatically. Matthew tells us that Peter said this. In Matthew 26, it says in his account, Peter says, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Verse 30 here in Mark's account says, Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So did you notice what just happened? Jesus very clearly and quickly corrected Peter's I never to it's going to happen this night and it's going to happen three times. He says, hey, Peter, not only will you fail me, but you're going to do it three different times even before this one night is over. And of course, and this is the ultimate spoiler alert if you haven't read the story, of course, we're going to see Peter before the end of this chapter deny that he even knows Jesus. And he's going to do it not when he's confronted by, you know, some army of religious police with machine guns or, or not by a legion of Roman soldiers, but big burly Peter is going to deny that he even knows the Lord when he's questioned by who? A little servant girl as he's warming himself around the fire. And by the time we get to the end of this chapter, the story ends in verse 72 with Peter in a puddle of his own tears, broken down and desperate over the way he failed the Lord. So Jesus knew that Peter was about to fail so badly, and he's going to do it in what Peter thought was his area of greatest strength, right? Peter thought he was courageous and bold, and Jesus is trying to prepare Peter for what he knows is coming. And I would hope, right, if I had been Peter, I would have quit while I was ahead. And yet, what do we read? Alas, look at verse 31. It says, but he spoke more vehemently. He said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. So Peter doesn't back down, he doubles down, right? He digs himself just that much deeper into this hole he's got going here. And this is what I think is super interesting here. It's only Mark that gives us this detail, right? That when Peter spoke this second time, only Mark tells us that he spoke more vehemently or more emphatically or more insistently, depending on your translation. Whatever that, you know, Peter became more and more passionate as time went along, and it's recorded for us here, and I think it's significant, especially when we remember that Mark's gospel account is based primarily on, fill in the blank, Peter's testimony. So what I believe is that this is Peter Right? This is post-resurrection Peter, mature Peter. This is Peter some years later as he was relaying this experience to Mark. This is Peter telling on himself. And really trying to, to warn us of this lesson that Peter had to learn the hard way. And that is the lesson of the danger of spiritual pride and self-confidence. You know, and it, I know it's easy for us to poke fun and to sit here on a Sunday morning and we can read and we could wonder how could Peter push the point like he did, right? How could he be so overly confident of his own abilities? But the truth is, right, we can make the very same mistake. Because what was happening here is that Peter was just unaware, 
He was unaware of the spiritual reality. He was certainly unaware of the spiritual battle that he was about to enter into. But Jesus could see it so clearly. Peter couldn't see it. Why? Because Peter's eyes were only focused on who? Peter. Peter didn't see the trap that was set for him. The only thing Peter could see was how strong he felt at the moment. All he could see, he was feeling pretty brave right about now. He was feeling pretty strong right about now. And it's kind of the same way that you and I can say, Lord, you know, you can count on me, I promise you. Right? How many times have we told the Lord, how many times have we said, Lord, you know, I promise I'm going to do this. Or Lord, I promise I'm not going to do that. Or Lord, I promise that was the last time. Right? How many of us? Okay, nobody? Okay, yeah, a couple honest people. Good. We'll talk afterward and we'll let all the liars go out and have yogurt together. That was the last time, Lord, I promise, right? But, you know, how many of us, we make these promises and these are real and passionate promises, we can make oaths, right? We can make these commitments. But the thing is, just because we have that heart, right? You know, there's a, a part of us, inside of us, you know, there's that part that cries out, Abba, Father. You know, we cry out, Daddy. And that there's that part of us that's in there that wants to do right, but we don't do it, right? It's just like Paul wrote to the Romans, right? Just describing his own personal struggles, Right, Romans chapter 7, as you get to the end there, and he says famously, he says, I have that desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, he says what? That's what I keep on doing. And then he cries out desperately. By the time you get to the end of the chapter, Paul says, oh, what a miserable person I am, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then what happens? Well, at the end of chapter 7, we go into chapter 8. A glorious chapter that starts out with him saying that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, Paul's great solution to our great problem, and to Peter's problem too, right, is not just try harder, do better. It's not to boast or have confidence in what we can do, but to place all of our hope in what Jesus can do. And the problem is that as long as we have any kind of self-confidence that we can do it, well, we're not going to trust on him to do it. Right Again, to the Philippians, Paul said that it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So he's the one that gives us that desire to even want to do right. Then he also gives us the power to do it. Holy Spirit power, right? His life in us that's flowing through us and that is strengthening us. And the only thing we do, our only part in this equation, all we do is receive and then just simply respond to what it is that he is already doing inside of us. You know, Paul goes on to tell the Philippians after he warns them really of the dangers of spiritual pride and of, of self-righteous kind of religiosity he says this to the Philippians, he says that we are the true circumcision or the ones who are right with God. He said, we who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and what, read it with me, put no confidence in the flesh. So all of that to simply say this, that putting our confidence in our own abilities takes our confidence off of God's abilities. It sets our sights too much on ourselves, and it just simply sets us up for failure. Right? You guys all know the verse. Paul also said, he wrote this to the Corinthians. They were a mess of a church. 
right? These guys thought that they had arrived spiritually when they were just a hot mess. He says to them, he says, therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now we wish Peter could have read that. Of course, Paul hadn't written it yet. But Peter had read this. In Proverbs 16, it says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Realize this, pride is dangerous, but spiritual pride can be deadly. And again, that's why Paul takes an entire chapter writing to those Corinthians. In his first letter, he spends an entire chapter writing about the dangers of spiritual pride and specifically of not learning from the scriptures. Make a note, mark it down. It's 1 Corinthians 10. You can read it when you get home. But you Bible students already know this is a wonderful warning taken from the pages of the Old Testament history of Israel where Paul wanted his Corinthian readers to learn just the same way that Israel had had to learn so painfully during their years of wilderness wanderings, they learned that spiritual pride is a powerful deceiver and that self-reliance is a great reducer. Let me say that again. Spiritual pride is a powerful deceiver and self-reliance is a great reducer. And I know that it seems so counterintuitive, but to, for us to successfully stand firm, we first have to understand just how vulnerable we are. To understand that we are but dust, right? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he, fall, lest he fall. And Paul's painting this picture of a person that thinks they're standing firm in the faith, but they're really just overconfident and self-deceived. Really, they're just standing kind of in the quicksand of their own weakness. If you guys use the NIV, it translates the translate. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. And Jesus is saying the same thing here to Peter. He's saying, Peter, take heed lest you fall. And this is a warning to all of those believers in the church who are convinced of their own righteousness and their own godliness and their own ability and self-confidence because Satan uses that false sense of spiritual security to set us up for failure because we don't see the dangers that are ahead. It, it's, it kind of works like rocks in a harbor. And when the tide is low, like in the picture here, Everybody sees the danger that's ahead of them, and they avoid it. But what's the strategy of Satan? What does he do? Well, to get us to fall into failure, he just raises the level of the water to cover over the danger spots. And then what does he do? He crashes us right into the covered-up rocks. They were always there. But because we thought we, we're just going to head straight for that lighthouse... And we crash into it and we're shipwrecked. And I think as we look at what happens here with Peter, I think it's fair to say that it was right here. It's right here as Peter argues with the Lord that this was the beginning of his sin and his ultimate denying of the Lord. Because think about it. If Peter had just listened to what Jesus said, if he had just listened to the words of Jesus and taken them in and just allowed them to really search his heart. And then if he had responded to them, he may not have denied the Lord. But here the seeds of his failure are already planted and they're now being watered by his pride because he was depending completely on himself. Like we said, he set himself against Jesus. He set himself apart from and above all of the rest of the disciples. Yeah, those guys maybe, but not me, Jesus. Even though Jesus in verse 31, look at it. What did he say? He says, all will be made to stumble. And in the original language, guess what all means? It means all, right? 
But what Peter couldn't do because of his pride, Peter couldn't consider that he was part of the all. And I don't know how strongly I can say this, but any believer who can't see their utter weakness apart from the Lord, that believer is simply doomed. Here's Peter. He's like a little boy who's just imagining himself to be victorious in battle. But he has no idea how weak his own weaponry and his own flesh was for this war that he was about to enter into. He was ill-prepared and his delusional view of himself we know is about to cost him dearly. So the most dangerous place to be in this morning is to be that person who would sit here in this room or who would stand in this room, right? That's me. But any of us who would look and we'd say, you know what, Lord, that's not a problem, not me. I got those areas of my life completely conquered. That's not going to be a problem in my life. Whatever it is, you will soon be in your own puddle of tears just like Peter because your flesh will fail you too. But the best place to be this morning, right, precisely the place we want to live, is that person who simply says, help me, Lord. The person who simply says, I need you, Jesus. I know that I'm going to fail. You know that I'm going to fail. But Jesus, just meet me back up in the Galilee. You know, help me walk in that resurrection life that you paid such an incredible price for me to have. So how do we stay in that place, right? How do we stay in that posture where we stay close to him and we stay desperate for him? Because that's the place he wants us to be. Living our lives in that place where we're desperate for him, where all that we have to rely on is him. Because that's the time when he can work in us is that time when we're empty of ourselves. And one of my very favorite Bibles, I don't even know how the time gets away from me like it does. It's a good thing we have yogurt coming. But one of my very favorite stories in the Bible as we kind of wrap this thing up, it's that Old Testament story of Gideon in Judges chapter 7. And you guys know the story. It's where these armies, uh, the enemies of Israel come against Israel, this combined army, there's Midianites and there's Amalekites, and the Bible says that there's other peoples of the east. All told, there's this combined army of upwards of 135,000 soldiers. And so God raises up this very, very inexperienced young man named Gideon. I found a picture right here on his Instagram. But he raises up this guy, Gideon, to, to raise an army to go to battle against them. And so Gideon sends out this call to all the tribes of Israel to come fight. And only 32,000 men show up to do battle. And Gideon says to the Lord, I don't like these odds. And the Lord said, neither do I. He says, you got way too many guys. Right? Remember, he says, if you win you're going to claim it was because of your own strength. And God said, look, do this, Gideon. Tell anyone who's afraid that they can go home. And the Bible says that 22,000 went home and only 10,000 stayed. Right? Imagine Gideon. He says, look, now I really don't like these odds. And God said, neither do I. There's still too many guys. God says, here's what we're going to do. He says, take the men down to the water for a drink, and everyone who bends all the way down on their hands and knees and drinks up the water with their mouth, you tell those guys they can go. But anyone who kneels and brings the water up to their mouth and kind of laps it out of their hands like a dog, those are the guys that I want. So Gideon did that, and what happened? It said that only 300 got down on one knee and lifted the water up to their lips. And God said, there's your army. Those are my guys. And then the Lord declared, so the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you 
and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. And just imagine Gideon's thinking, now I really don't like the odds. But God really did like the odds now. It was 300 against 135,000. And for you math folks, that's 450 to 1. And here's the thing. Most people suggest that the reason that God selected those 300 men who kind of knelt down on one knee and, you know, brought the water up to their mouths, that God selected them because they were the ones who were staying in kind of a more watchful, right, a more ready position, and, you know, so they were the better warriors. I got to say I disagree with that wholeheartedly, respectfully, but wholeheartedly. Because it doesn't fit the narrative, and it also doesn't fit the way that the Lord works. What I believe is that the 300 guys who got down on one knee and brought the water up to their mouth with their hands were the 300 guys who couldn't get all the way down to the water with their mouths, most likely because they were too old or too out of shape or had, you know, bad backs and bad knees. I believe that what God did is he sent the entire Stanford wrestling team home and he kept me, right? So now he's got 300 of me. And God says, now I can work. Right? That's the point. He says, Gideon, now I know you have no resources that you can boast of, nothing that you can be confident in. And that's exactly where I want you to be. Because now all I want you to do is stand back, do what I say, and watch me work, and watch me hand you this decisive victory. And of course, what? That's precisely what happened. And you can read the story yourself to find out how it happened. Or you can wait a few months, because I think that the book of Judges is very likely where we're going to head next when we finally finish up the book of Mark. It's a great book if you've, if you've never read it. The point for us this morning is that God wants us to be desperate for him. And we sing songs constantly, right? Poor Fior is up here leading us in these songs, you know, empty me, Lord, fill me with you. But the problem is that most of us are so filled up with ourselves that God first has to send some soldiers home, right? Because there's just no room for him to come in and to work and to refresh and to empower and to strengthen. And this is precisely, I think, what's about to happen with poor Peter. Right? It all started right here in this passage because he allowed himself to get filled up with spiritual pride and self-confidence. And what's worse maybe about this whole thing, as we finish up, we got a few more words left in verse 31. Not only did Peter's pride get the best of him, but it actually kind of influenced and infected everyone around him. At the beginning he's, of verse 31, he says, no, Lord, I'm going to die for you. And then in the rest of that verse, what does it say? And they all said, likewise. Isn't it ironic, if you guys remember last time we were in this text, during that dinner, remember, these guys kind of hit this spiritual high point because they all, you know, had this self-awareness. They really searched their own hearts. They said, Lord, is it me that's going to deny you? But now they were so very convinced that they couldn't be the one to deny him. And again, if we're going to give them the benefit of the doubt, I know that they were sincere they meant exactly what they said. They meant it in their hearts. The problem was they didn't know their own hearts. And by the time we get to verse 50, right in the middle of this chapter, just after Jesus gets arrested in the garden, what does it say? In verse 50, spoiler alert, it says that they, what? All forsook him. And again, all really does mean all. In the coming weeks, we're going to see, again, 
Our problem is the same as the disciples' problem. They were totally unaware of the spiritual reality and of this battle that they were headed into, but it was precisely the battle that Jesus could see that he was trying to prepare them for. They all felt really brave at the moment, but they had no perception beyond the moment, and that's the pitfall of spiritual pride. So, we need to stay close. We need to stay desperate. We need to stay in that place where we're relying only on Jesus, right? Day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, moment by moment, right? To be like David when he was out in the wilderness of Judah. In Psalm 63, he says, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Or Psalm 42, where it talks about the deer that pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you. That place where we're just allowing his resurrection life to be what satisfies us and flows through us and empowers us. What a great vision that is for a year to come. So we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. And as we do, let's reflect on it and just settle that in our hearts, right? With the help of the Lord, even this morning, you know, I pray that 2024 is going to be our year of desperation for the Lord, right? The year of desperation. And so as Fior comes up and, and starts to minister you know, you guys know communion here. If you're a believer, you don't have to be a member of our church, but communion is for you. And as we start to sing and to worship, you can just come up. Pastor Jeff's going to uncover the elements. Um, you can take the elements and just take them back to your seats and take some time between you and the Lord and just reflect on some of these things. It's time for you to ask him to really search your heart and to speak to you. If you need prayer for something in particular before you take communion, again, Pastor Jeff is here and his wife Anne is here and they would love to, to pray with you or to pray for you about something if you need to unburden your heart before you come to the table. But let's just take this time and, and reflect and to try to, uh, to, just to try to enter into that place where we're desperate for him and really allowing him to be the only thing that we're relying upon. Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the example of Peter and the rest of these men, Lord, whose heart's desire was to follow so fully after you, Lord, and we want that to be our heart's desire too, Lord, and we want to do it in a way that we are just completely dependent upon and desperate for you. And Lord, we pray that you would make that truth real in our hearts, even now as we go to this time of communion. Lord, that you would bless us, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.